Hey all, Sunday here. I'm excited to announce that here at SmartLogic, we're hiring for a mid-level Ruby on Rails or Elixir developer, a product designer, and for a staff engineer. Come join our team and enjoy working from home with great benefits, flexible hours, a work-from-home stipend, and professional development opportunities. All right, now here's the show. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Owen Bickford, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Ivovich, and my producer, Bonnie. Hi, Dan. Hello. So this season's theme is Elixir in a polyglot environment, where we talk about how Elixir works with other languages. Today, we're joined by special guest Devin Estes from Remote. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we'll jump right in. I know, first of all, I wanted to bring up the point that the Elixir in a polyglot environment is actually Dan's idea for the theme this season. So I wanted to kind of get your kind of impetus for why you thought this was a good area for conversation. Sure. Yeah, I think when SmartLogic added Elixir to kind of our portfolio of technology that we were using, we found that it really changed the way we did some other things. We have some clients where we're using both Ruby and Elixir, some clients where we're just using Elixir, JavaScript's kind of pervasive. And so I thought it'd be interesting to see how other companies have changed because of Elixir or how it kind of fits into a larger puzzle piece rather than keeping such a you know focused view on Elixir itself. Right on. So with that out of the way, who is Devin Estes? So, uh, yeah, my name's Devin. I am American, but I live in Germany. I've lived in Berlin for seven years now. And yeah, I have two kids and a wife and a dog and I write code on, on computers and that's that's most of my life. But yeah, when I'm not doing that, I play chess too. But that's sort of my main hobby now that you know, I haven't been to a movie theater in like three years at this point. But <laughs> cause I used to love going to movies too and stuff like that. But that's a bit harder these days. But yeah, that's mostly it for me. Some of your talks have been formative for me as a Elixir engineer. So I was kind of getting into Elixir and coding at the same time a few years ago back in I'd say 2015, 2016. And I was just kind of scrolling through the list of videos earlier just to kind of refresh my memory. And I think your refactoring talk helped me kind of have an idea of like what good friendly code looks like and how to kind of shape code so that it works well for myself and for other people on a team. So I just wanted to give you a shout out. That was a great talk. The content delivery and everything was was great top to bottom. So good stuff. <laughs> I'm really happy people are still watching that. I mean, that's from 2017, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. That was probably my first talk that I gave on Elixir that was, you know, like recorded and at a big conference and stuff. So it's sort of wild for me to hear people are, what, five years later still watching that stuff and getting <laughs> value from it. It's great. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, I mean, A, that that's still valuable content and B, it's sort of interesting that most tech talks from five years ago are so outdated that you can't learn anything. But I guess Elixir is so stable that content from five years ago is still relevant today, which is a really nice plus, you know? Right. Yeah, it feels evergreen, like the refactoring. Like I'm rethinking about like I need to start maybe adding a couple macros here and there to get those compilation advantages that you talked about. But it's nice having videos that are still relevant, you know, from four or five years ago. You've done some talks since then. Are you conferences are starting to pick back up again? Are you kind of looking at getting back into the conference scene? I did a talk, not the upcoming ElixirConf EU, but the last one, the one in Warsaw. 
I don't know. That that might have been my last talk, to be honest. Like I've been doing talks for a long time. I have like maybe one more talk in me, but it's more of like a keynote thing. So one day if somebody invites me to do a keynote, maybe I'll do that. But they take a lot of time, you know, and I've done a lot of them at this point. And there are a lot of other people out there that also have interesting things to say. You know, those two things together is like, I don't really need it anymore. I mean, a lot of, the, to be totally honest, a lot of the reason I did is, yeah, I like doing it. It's fun. I like that people get benefit from it. But also for a long, long time, I was a freelancer. And so it was important for me to be out there and have people know who I was so that I could get some work. And I'm not a freelancer anymore. And I don't need that benefit as much. And so it might be time for others to share what they've learned as well. But also like, in a way, the stuff that I've learned is becoming less and less relevant to everyday engineers, <laughs> because the stuff that I've learned is, you know, there are very few people that have gosh, at this point, like seven years of Elixir experience. And so like most people are in the one to two to three years of experience. And so like most people are going to get more benefit out of the talks that are geared towards those folks because there are just so many more of them than there are like the talks that I give. Although I can, like the one I, I gave at Elixir Conf EU was about stuff that most people are never going to touch but I think are really super cool. We're getting into the realm where my talks are not at all practical, but I think really cool, like the really cool stuff about the beam that no one's ever going to use. But it's still really cool to know about it and to know how it works and to be able to appreciate the beam and all the wild and crazy things that you can do with it, you know? And like XUnit, like it was sort of <laughs> one of the sort of key points of that talk is that we, mon we monkey patch XUnit to do what we want to do, like to make it do something that really shouldn't do, which you can do. Not many people know you can do, but you can do it. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff that nobody's going to do at work. You know, it's not, not helpful. No company is going to want to pay for their engineer to go and learn that stuff. That's not a good investment on their learning budget, but it is super fun. And I think it's really interesting. So that's, that's the sort of stuff that I have to share these days. So it's less less applicable to most folks. And so I'm sure that there are lots of other folks out there that have more equally interesting, but maybe more relevant and applicable stuff that they can share with the the broader Elixir audience on, on these days. So I still like going to conferences, like when they are in person and hanging out and meeting new people and like hearing about different ways that people are using Elixir or the Beam or Erlang or even other languages too. Hearing what work is like and just meeting people. That's always fun. Catching up with people you haven't seen in years. You know, that was great for me for this last Elixir Conf, you know, going out to dinner with friends that you haven't seen in a long time and just being able to catch up with people is, is really great because there are a lot of really nice people around. So that's a great right. part of conferences for me. Yeah, I can definitely second that. Even a smaller conference like Big Elixir, you know, I've met people from different parts of the globe. You know, we had people come in from Australia, I think India, and then some guys from Uruguay and Brazil. So got friends all over the globe now. <laughs> I wouldn't have had if I, you know, was doing a virtual conference only. So uh, like I, you would meet them, but all of the kind of outside of the conference stuff, all the lunches and dinners is where like those relationships really kind of get built up. And yeah. I'm really happy that we're getting more and more in-person conferences now. Dan, how long has it been since you've been to a conference? February of 2020. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we had the virtual one, and I think I participated a little bit in ElixirConf and some things like that. But it is a great community, and certainly, Devin, the content that you've shared, super valuable and super interesting. I'm curious. So it sounds like your kind of like topic of choice is mostly driven by personal curiosity and not your day-to-day? -day. 
So most of the talks that I give break down into one of two themes. One is this is a huge mistake I made and here's everything I learned about it. Sure. Right? Classic. So like classic. I did this thing. It was really bad, but I probably learned some cool stuff along the way. But like, here's this mistake. Don't make this mistake again. Now everyone else doesn't need to make the same mistake I did. And you can learn the same stuff that I learned. So like that's one topic. And then the other one is kind of, here's this really interesting paper that I've read that I'm sure none of you have read because most software engineers don't go around reading papers. And here's what I learned about it that can actually be applicable to your daily work. So those are the ones that are a bit more practical, although one of them was completely not practical, but still cool. <laughs> sort of like the the thesis that I was exploring turned out to not be true, but I did learn something else along the way. But you know, like the, the talk on concurrency patterns, like that's really practical. And that comes from an old paper that was later expanded into a book and like half of them don't apply to us, but some of them do. And I think it's important to like give names to those patterns so that we know what we're talking about when we're talking about different concurrency patterns. So yeah, those are the, the two general themes. It's like, this is a thing that I did that was really bad and what I learned. This is a paper that I read that's really cool that you probably didn't read. So here's a high level summary and how it applies to your work. That's usually one of those two. And so you've started at remote since I think you were last on our podcast, at least. How's your day-to-day -day there involve Elixir or do you find that there is a connection between your, your kind of, this would be helpful at work and your actual work? So yeah, I started at remote in November of 2021. And there, you know, it's a big Elixir code base on the back end. There's, of course, JavaScript on the front end. And I'm leading one of many teams now. And so, yeah, it's me and a couple of Elixir developers and a front end developer who's actually teaching himself Elixir, which is also really cool just because he wants to learn it. But yeah, I work with Elixir day to day. Most of my time is spent coding, but I also have a fair amount of the sort of people management responsibilities for my team for one-on-ones and making sure, you know, my my team is developing, everybody's growing, all that stuff, the the sort of engineering manager part of the role. So it's it's one of those sort of dual roles where you're still coding, but you're also in charge of a, a group of people and help making sure that they, you know, have everything they need to do their job really well and they're well taken care of and they're developing and learning and all of that, which I, I really love doing. You know, it's something I did a lot as a freelancer was teams would come in and say, we're new to Elixir and we want someone to come in and teach everybody because, you know, we think it'll be a good fit, but nobody really knows it. So can you come and get us jump started? That sort of thing. Or one contract, funny enough, was when I worked for a very large fintech that opened an office here in Berlin, they hired, I think, 250 engineers in Berlin in like five months, right? But it was an Erlang code base. You're not going to find 250 Erlang developers, much less 250 Erlang developers in one city. So they just hired developers. And so they had this team of five and they were given this Erlang code base for their application and none of them knew Erlang. So they were like, hey, can you hire someone to come in and like teach us Erlang because we have no idea what we're doing? So yeah, there's, there was a fair amount of that sort of stuff in my earlier years. And it's so fun to teach the beam and to teach a lecture and like to see, especially people that don't have experience with it, to see them like really light up when they see how cool it is and like how it addresses so many problems that are in so many other languages. And that's not always the case. There's always some resistance in those situations of someone that's reasonably spent 10 years becoming a master in Ruby and all of a sudden the stuff that they've spent 10 years mastering is not really valuable in their current job. And so, of course, they're going to push back on that a little bit. That's totally reasonable and because it's it's different. 
and things that are different don't feel great at first. But with a little bit of time, it becomes second nature. You know, anybody that's learned a, a, another language, probably like a, a spoken language knows that as well, where I know like when I first started learning German, the, the way the syntax is in German for especially the past tense, like the way they arrange words. If you were to literally translate a word in German, like I, a sentence in German, like I brushed my teeth in German, it's ich habe meine Zähne gebürstet. So it's I have my teeth brushed. And when I first learned German, I was like, that's insane. I am never <laughs> going to get it. And now it feels extremely weird for me to not do it that way because I've practiced for years now. So like anything, it feels awful and different and not like what I'm used to at first. But then after time, it, it becomes second nature. You know, everything that's not similar to what we're used to is is scary and different and hard. And, and we always assign those judgments of like, this is bad sometimes, like this is wrong. Or this is, like I said, like, this is nuts. Like, why would you do that? Uh, <laughs> but it's just different to me because it's different from what I'm used to. Now that I'm used to it, it, it's totally fine. Have you seen any particular, like this language to Erlang or this language to Elixir where it's extra challenging, or is it really more a factor of how long someone's been doing something or what their experience is than the language they're coming from? It's not even that. It's how open-minded they are. If they are extremely attached to their former language, like if if they were not making the choice often to do it, that's going to be hard. They're they're not going to want to get out of the mindset that they're in. They're not going to want to think differently. They you have to have the desire to change. We are growing extremely quickly, and of course, again, there are a lot of Elixir engineers, but not enough. And so at remote, we will hire people that are not Elixir engineers, you know, that have no Elixir experience and will train you up. But those people know what they're getting into. They are signing up for that. And those folks learn extremely quickly. You know, we have someone in the most recent cohort from Java, from C Sharp and the .NET ecosystem, from Ruby, from Python. All of them have jumped in and gotten it real fast. And the major concerns... <laughs> that come up, frankly, are like, it's difficult to say it without sounding mean in a way, but they get a bit caught up at how simple it is. They overthink things because there aren't more patterns and more setup and more rules. I tell them, it's like, it's just functions and data. You don't need to think about it so hard. <laughs> Pick a place to put it and it's a function and it you know, you call it with some data and that's it. You don't need to think about like, well, where should this go? And how does that work? And like, it's it's in a way so simple that it trips them up because they're used to complex and complicated patterns and designs and paradigms and all that stuff. Whereas with Elixir, it's just functions and data. And there's some stuff in there around conventions so that people know where to go for where to find this thing and where that thing lives. But that's just so humans can find code faster. And now that we have good language servers, you don't even really need that. So, And yeah. you can definitely make it more complicated. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. Like you can add some crazy abstractions and, and make things a little bit more opaque. Well, that, that kind of has me wondering, do you see people from maybe more complicated or, or more configuration-driven backgrounds bringing complexity in and you kind of have to fight that urge or no? no? Because you can't. <laughs> like well, what are you going to do? Like you only have functions and data. Like the only thing that they can bring in is maybe trying to add too much configuration or something. But that's not really complexity. And that usually gets, just gets squashed at, at the review time saying like, you know, don't add a new configuration variable if it's only used once. 
don't add more application config unless you're going to use it in multiple places and unless it really needs to be defined at compile time. Otherwise, just chuck it in a module attribute right next to the function that's using it. If it really needs to be like compiled in at compile time, uh, then sure. But even that doesn't really offer much of a performance benefit in most cases. Like if you have a, a literal assigned to a variable, the, the, the beam optimizes most of that stuff away for you to where it's the same level of performance as having a module attribute, unless you're doing something like mapping over some stuff and then assigning the output to a module attribute, then sure, do that once at compile time. But yeah, it's very hard to add complexity in the small scale. You can add complexity in the large scale if someone that was coming from a different paradigm wanted to design the entire application in a way that matched their previous experience, then sure, maybe that would be a problem. But no, it's pretty hard to add complexity to a functional programming language because what are you going to do like put functions in the wrong place like <laughs> that's it's all all you can do really so do you have people doing other things besides elixir at remote either across the world or on your team at remote well there's always sql is a big thing i mean there's some data folks they're mostly working in sql i mean spreadsheets, but increasingly fewer of those spreadsheets are, it's important to remember, the world's most popular programming language. But yeah, at remote specifically, it is really just front-end JavaScript and then Elixir as the primary drivers. It is it is still a single application. It's not multiple applications. It's not, we don't have, you know, some weird microservice in Go somewhere or something that lots of companies seem to get stuck with. It's like, yeah, we're a Ruby shop, but then we have that one Go application that nobody really touches or we're Java, but then somebody did a Scala thing and that still runs for some reason. And yeah, we just have Elixir at remote, but I've done a lot of stuff in the past where it was multiple languages for lots of different reasons. No NIFs even? Nope. Okay, cool. Was uh, remote Elixir from the start, or are you there yep. at the end of a rewrite? Nope, day one Elixir. It's a very young company. It was only started in 2000, I want to say 18, or maybe even 19, officially at the beginning of 2019. Good timing for world events, huh? Right, yeah, the word remote has become ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what, that, that's a good point. So, we've kind of mentioned the, the company a couple of times. What is it that remote does? Just so we kind of have, like at the bird's eye view, what is remote and how does Elixir play a part in that? So, at the high level, remote is a platform that allows companies to hire, pay, and do everything that you need to do to have an employee in many countries around the world. I think we're at over 100 countries now. So if you want to actually have an employee or Germany in Germany or Mexico or Canada or America or England or Thailand or Malaysia, then you can. And actually an employee, not a contractor, but an employee that is legally an employee, you are following all the rules, you are compliant with all the local laws and all that stuff. So it basically takes all of the hassle out of that. And behind that, there is a web application that basically lets you do all the stuff. So, you know, it's entering data and making sure people get paid and making sure taxes are taken out correctly and all that stuff is done. This is all done in the, the Elixir application. 
my specific team is integrations with third parties. So we integrate with third party like uh, HR software and hiring software so that, you know, when someone is hired, that they just automatically get added to remote and so that they're paid and all that and all that's taken care of. Nobody needs to go and actually enter it in. So people like when their software all just works together nicely. And so that's my team specifically. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff that is done at remote, but it's all around hiring and paying and, and doing all the things you need to do, you know, time off, all that stuff with employees all around the world. I've recently seen like a, quite a glimpse of how complex it can be just in hiring in the U.S. using an HR system. Can't imagine how much more complicated it could be hiring across hundreds of countries and uh, different states and, you know, requirements for each of those. So all of that kind of rules engine stuff is happening in Elixir? So I wouldn't say rules engine. So like you mentioned, you can't abstract away all of the rules. There are people that are handling specific things in specific countries. You know, like when someone is actually hired and onboarded, there are onboarding specialists to make sure that all of the correct paperwork is done. You can't even really encode all of that because also it changes all the time. And a lot of it is very subjective or like, you know, you need to have the someone needs to look and make sure that like the photocopy is of a sufficiently good quality of their driver's license and stuff. So there are a lot of humans involved in the process. I mean, I think the company is up to over a thousand people at this point. So there are a lot of humans involved in the process, but we try and make their job as easy and fast and automated and as possible and that they have a nice interface with which they can work so that they can make sure that they quickly and efficiently do everything they need to do in order for these folks to be hired. So yeah, yesterday I was listening to a, an episode of Against the Rules with Michael Lewis, and he was talking about this software startup that was trying to help engineer away like medical billing issues. And once they finally like started talking to the experts who've been working in the industry for decades, like they would go and like do interviews with people and they would get to the office and just see post-it notes everywhere. So I wonder if you, I don't know, you know, it's a remote company, I'm sure. So you might not be aware of how many post-it notes are just pasted on people's monitors. But it, what you're describing sounds a lot like that, where these HR systems have a lot of rules and it can be engineered to a degree, but there's also a lot of just knowledge that is retained by people that have to go through and kind of review and and help get these applications and getting these people on board in a successful way. Well, I mean, it's not sticky notes, it's Notion. So, you know, it's... Wow. <laughs> so, you can see them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, the, you know, the, they all have their rules and they know what they need to do. And it's a very specialized skill, what they've learned, you know, to, to know how to basically hire and do everything necessary and fill out all the forms in all of the various languages that need to be done. You know, we have a lot of people that speak a lot of languages that work for remote because, you know, if you're filling out forms for Germany, it needs to be in German. Same thing in Denmark, it needs to be in Danish. So, and everybody also speaks English. So there's a lot of very specialized skill and knowledge in what they do, but also there is a fair amount of it that can be abstracted. So that's sort of what we do is we make it much faster for them to do their work and much easier by 
providing some sort of common abstractions around, okay, they're hired and so we're going to need this and that and that and that and that. And there is some stuff where we know specifically what is needed for each country. So like some of that stuff is is necessary, but it's not like a rules engine more than it is checklists so that whenever we launch a new country, we make sure we have all the forms and stuff needed. And, and then folks need to actually look at them and make sure that if somebody submits a PDF and says it's a picture of their passport, it's actually a picture of their passport and it's actually them. You can't automate that too well. I mean, I guess people are trying to start doing that stuff with like identity. But yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff around these that need to be just mainly manually reviewed and, and made sure that it's done correctly because it's a pretty important legal process, you know, can't can't offload all of it to computers, but computers can help quite a bit. So a lot of what the you know, remote backend that you're working on then is doing is is just managing kind of the flow of all this data as it moves through the various steps and approvals and checklists. And like you said, you're you're working specifically on integrations and kind of keeping data in sync with a company's own HR systems. So it seems like, you know, while it may be full all Elixir, and, and I certainly find that Elixir is really great at that kind of like data flow, data processing type of work. I'm curious, you know, either through your own experience or that of those of your team, has Elixir influenced how they think about things that are not Elixir? I mean, I'm mostly interested in how it impacts other language use, but also, you know, just like, does Elixir kind of give you patterns that you find able to apply in other ways? That's a tricky one because I genuinely don't know people that have written Elixir and then like gone and written other stuff. I can say that I was someone who was writing in a very Elixir-y style before I even knew Elixir sure. existed, right? Like I was one of those people who was writing Ruby in like that very functional Ruby style where you have all those objects and they have a call method on them. Like I did that because that worked for me. That worked for my head, my mind. Like that I liked the way that that worked. And that was before I even touched any functional language. And so then when I found Elixir, it just sort of fit for me so naturally. And that's the way that I like to think about coding and, and programming and, and like solving problems as solving problems as data flowing through steps in, in a, a process, you know, it's the way I've always thought about it. I know that there are some folks that have said that they've really enjoyed moving out of an object-oriented, mutable way of thinking, moving to this, it's just functions and data, and data flows through functions, and it's changed, and then it goes back to the outside world most of the time. They really enjoy that, but I can't say that they've applied that to their object-oriented code writing, because they don't really write object-oriented sure. code anymore. You know, Most of the people that I've worked with are moving away from that and trying to move away from that. I mean, the only exception to that was, funny enough, that contract that I took where, you know, they hired all those engineers and those of them knew, knew Erlang. I mean, as one would think, of course, that application was rewritten in a language that they knew, which was probably the right choice. It was a small enough application. It was pretty old anyway. And so they said, you know, we'll just rewrite this in, in Python because we know it and we like it. But even that, I don't know if it was my influence or not, ended up being a pretty functional inspired version. You know, there was even some talk of using like AWS Lambda, which is really just a function, you know? <laughs> right. It's hard to maintain state in a Lambda. Yeah. Yeah. You can do it, but yeah. Yeah. So I think they had seen some of the benefits of not having to keep track of state. It's a hassle, you know? Yeah. There's, there's some 
some people find some cognitive benefit to it. It matches the way they think about problems. But I think for a lot of people, functions and data is simpler than trying to create these large sort of organic systems where everything interacts and everything knows what to do. These are, in theory, great ideas. You know, I, I, I think one of the original inspirations for object-oriented programming was like cells in a body and how they all interact and they're all independent, but they can still interact by sending each other messages. But then when one looks at how unreasonably almost complex the human body is. Right, right. You got to be able to keep uh, that I, I don't system work in, in your that head, system. right? I don't want to work in that system. Like it's impossible. Nobody knows what everything else is doing. Like it is, it is the most complex system in the history of, of, of the world. I think like yeah. the human and body is fault incredible. tolerant and not fault tolerant. <laughs> well, to some, ex to some right. extent, you know, depends on what's faulting. Yeah. It can recover from, so from a lot of things, you know, we can't regrow limbs yet. We're not as cool <laughs> as like geckos, but there's a lot that we can do. That's pretty cool, but it's extremely complex and you know, it's much simpler to just be working at the level of like a single cell organism where, you know, stuff goes in, stuff comes out, some stuff happens in the middle. You know, there's, there's, there's not a lot there. <laughs> That's really what a function is. You know, you're not building these huge systems and, you know, it might be an elegant idea and it might be an intriguing parallel and a great concept and a great theory. But what I've seen in practice is that that complexity leads to problems because nobody can keep everything in their head. You, you don't remember how everything interacts. And so when you make a change, you run the risk of, introducing an unintended interaction and an unintended consequence. Whereas when it's a little simpler, you have less of that as a problem. Sure. You know what I mean? So when I started my career, you know, I mean, a lot of my formal training was very object oriented, right? It was like, that was how everything was done. There was functional, but it seemed like this other thing. And when I got exposed to functional, I was like, yes, I, I agree. And I started writing a lot of my object-oriented code in a very functional pattern, probably like how you were writing your, your Ruby originally, because that was just how your brain wanted to do it. And I don't know if it's my community, the company, the people who I speak to now, functional is just so much more pervasive in that community, or if it actually is more pervasive in the world. When you're looking for developers, when you're bringing people in, do you think that the object-oriented to functional kind of like wrapping your head around that is as big of a hurdle now as it was five, 10 years ago, or is it still a hurdle, but people get over it and it's fine? I don't think it was ever a hurdle. Like I said, I think at its very core, functional code is simpler than object-oriented code. The hurdle is not the understanding of it. The hurdle, like I think I also said before, the hurdle is the the desire to understand it. For most people, when the world is dominated by object-oriented code, if you're going to get your next job, you want to know an object-oriented language. You know, you're you're really niching down to move yourself out of that world into a functional programming world. Probably, I don't know, 90% of the world's programmers write object-oriented code every day. Functional programming is a small niche in the broader scheme of professional software developers. So for a lot of people, when that number was even higher, when it was, you know, 95%, they didn't want to write object, you know, they didn't want to write functional code. They, they wanted to write object-oriented code. Maybe it fit their brain well, maybe it didn't. But I mean, for most people, especially most younger people, which is still most software developers are probably under 25, 28, they're thinking of developing themselves and their career and what's best for them. And that's, a lot of them think that is 
becoming really good at object-oriented code and reading the design patterns books and knowing all the terms and knowing how to design these really complicated object-oriented systems and that's going to be what's best for them. But yeah, I don't think it's ever been more difficult to learn a functional language, especially one like Elixir, than it is to learn an object-oriented language. Maybe when functional languages were primarily of the more mathematically inspired <laughs> Haskell, ML, OCaml type of languages, maybe that was daunting to folks. But at its very core, spreadsheets, everybody knows spreadsheets, and that's a functional language. That's what we got. There's no types there. There's there's nothing there, really. You don't even get to assign variables, really, other than the, the cell names. But that is... I think everybody can understand is simpler than every other possible programming language. You know, it's simpler than object oriented. It's simpler than, than SQL. It's certainly simpler than something like Prolog, like any of the logic programming languages. It is, I think, the most simple form of computing that you can have. You know, that's why it's at its very core. Lambda calculus is really simple. It's just functions calling functions. When you add all of that stuff up, eventually you get to the higher level stuff and you get to a Turing complete programming language that can calculate anything that can be calculated, which is great. But that is still simpler than the additional stuff. You know, Elixir is simpler than Haskell for sure. But I also think Elixir is simpler than every object oriented language out there, be it Ruby or Python or JavaScript or any of those things. Or, or certainly, you know, you start adding types back into the mix and like Go and Java. So yeah, it's simpler than those. Definitely simpler than Rust. There's just less, there's less stuff to do. It is by definition simpler just because there is less, you know, it's just functions and data. And it's not hobbled because like it's not hobbled as a result of the smaller surface area. You get a standard library and you get some external dependencies maybe that you, you might need to use for different purposes. But it's not like Elixir is less capable than object-oriented languages because of its smaller code base or, you know, or its simplicity. Yeah, I wanted to touch on a something that crossed my mind a few minutes ago. We've kind of envisioned this season as thinking about Elixir working with other languages in a polyglot environment. But what you're describing is a different form of polyglot environment where you have an international application that needs it needs to go through translations for different languages. So is that also being handled inside of Elixir where your Elixir app is itself a polyglot? <laughs> if it's uh, outputting English and you know Spanish and everything else, no. So a lot of user interface is is mostly in English at the moment, but like a lot of the forms that need to be filed by humans are often in whatever language is spoken or is official in the the country in which that person is working. There is some translation of things. I've done that in in the past for sure. Translation, you know, another one of those things that has just a function, data in, data out, you know, strings in, translated strings out. It's real easy to do, real, real easy to do, which is really nice. Do you ever find yourself going into like get text or to like add translations or is that someone else's job entirely? Yeah, not, not me. <laughs> like I said, I'm only working on integrations, which is... One could say a whole other language in and of itself with all of the ways that these different APIs that we are interacting with work and, and all of that stuff. It's it's in, it's language in terms of domain language too. Like we need to have not only our domain language and like what what we mean when we say an external employee or an admin admin or a company, like what that means. And then 
all of the same terms often having different meanings within the documentation of these out, these other platforms. So like we need to know our internal business language and the business language of all of these other companies as well in order to be able to use their documentation and their APIs. And that's that's a tricky thing too. But that's one of the benefits of, of writing, I think, is when you have a, a remote asynchronous company, most communication is written. And so that I find often forces you to be very specific and very clear in what you're talking about. Because when you write something down and you, you see like a really vague sentence, you're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. They're not going to know what I'm talking about. So you go back and you, you, you edit it to make sure it's really clear. So it's a good thing. That's an important skill, right? Understanding who you're writing for and being able to think about that in, in that way. But I think you, you're talking about the API integrations and the domain model and the domain language, I think was was really interesting. And I, it's it's a place where I have found that functional languages, Elixir with pattern matching, things like that work extremely well to smooth over the decisions that some other team has made in how they have named their things or how they've structured their APIs. And I think that's an interesting, you know, while you may only be using Elixir, you deal with the repercussions of other people's choices a lot. <laughs> and your team does a lot more than a lot of other people doing technology at remote. Uh, certainly not how uh, some of your onboarding specialists have to deal with other people's decisions more so than probably anybody. But yeah, that's it. That's really interesting. Yeah, that translation is anybody that's ever worked with third-party APIs, which, you know, I've worked with a lot of them at this point. And you know, it's, it's I think, what was it, James's book, James and Bruce's book, the Worker Bees book. I forget the name of it, but it's James Edward Gray II and Bruce Tate's book where they have, you know, they say you have your outer boundary and you do all of your basically like coercion of getting it into your internal data types at that point. And like you do everything at the outside when it first comes in, get it into your internal shape of data into your domain and do that, that sort of translation once. And then from there on out, you should be good sure. you know, at the sort of core of your application. And that's of course what we do. Like we, we make an API call and we just immediately translate whatever that is into data that we know how to work with that works with our platform. That's an important thing to do because otherwise, if you start letting that stuff slip in, you you weaken the abstractions that you have and you start having to have lots of is statements and pattern matches that you don't want to have all out all throughout the code rather than in one place. You know, you really want to immediately take that data and get it into from their data to your data as right. fast as possible. Well, and that's where I think, you know, my experience with Elixir as a functional language has really be able to draw those boundaries, you know, and like, you know, everything takes discipline, but I think so many of the patterns, it, it can be so easy to, you know, end up with a huge object or objects that know too much about each other because it's the only way to solve a problem quickly or, you know, various things that you, you patterns you box yourselves in, in, in with, or over, over years and decades of building Ruby, you know, that you're just like, well, this app has this now and to, to fix it is going to be a struggle. And I've always really, I found that the, the boundaries I can draw with Elixir have always, for whatever reason, stood the test of time a little better, or at least been easier to to keep clean in, in, if they start to get a little messy. By the way, I did a quick Google search. The name of the book is Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. There you go. By James Edward Gray and Bruce Tate. Yeah, so it's still available for sale. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> As we start to wrap up here, anything exciting you're hearing about in the community? I don't know if you have thoughts. We haven't even mentioned live view on this conversation. That's okay with me. Uh, it comes up almost every conversation. Anything that anything out in the out in the Elixir community that's kind of get got you exciting or interesting? 
Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the tech isn't what gets me interested these days. Like the like I'm happy that it is functionally like stable. There's stuff that I think is really cool, but I don't think it is interesting from a like technology perspective. I think it's interesting from a growing elixir perspective. So like I am never going to use any of like NX or any of the machine learning stuff. It's not something I have any interest in whatsoever. However, it is a problem that is, I think, uniquely suited to the beam. And it's great that we are developing those tools because I remember at one one place that I worked, they had two brilliant data scientists, like two of the smartest data scientists I've ever met. And they were doing this work in Python and they were really struggling with like, I have to do all this stuff and it does one at a time. Can you help me like write a bash script so that I can chunk this up and run them in parallel? I was like, you want me to rewrite it in Elixir really quick? And then it'll work optimally fast with almost no effort. And he was like, you can do that. And I did. And it worked optimally fast. I was like, no, it will actually make sure that 100% of all your CPU usage is, is used until this is finished. The funny thing I actually mentioned it in the last talk I gave is we have a function in the Erlang standard library that will basically say, hey, if I have a cluster of nodes, run this function and distribute it optimally across the cluster. And one function will do that. Whereas that's like a dream for most people, in most other runtimes. So like if you want to cluster together 15 big AWS machines to cram through a whole bunch of work and like do it, it will optimally take care of that workflow for you with no work at all. It's free. So I think that is really important, even though it is something that I'm not really interested in and not ever going to use, but I do think it's an important evolution of the language. Of course, for the web, it's incredible. You know, that's why Phoenix was so early. And for Embedded, it's also really good. And that's why Nerves was also really early. And I'm really happy that both of those are there and continue to develop because they're great use cases for the Beam. And I'm also now super happy that NX exists and that people are doing more work of, of making Elixir a viable language for data science, which it always was, but it just lacked the libraries. You know, it lacked something like Pandas or like Scikit-learn. And that's the only thing it lacked. And, and those are extremely important. People expect that stuff to be there at this point. But the Beam itself, the runtime is so much better than almost every other runtime, unless if you count like the fact that most of those languages in like Python just shell out to C++ anyway. But what the language offers is so great for that. So I'm really happy that that's developing and developing more because I think that's going to be great for adoption across the ecosystem. And also it'll just be great for those data scientists that will, their lives will be a whole lot easier now. Like that's, that's always a great thing. So that I'm excited about, even though I'm, I'm never going to do it. I think it's really cool and really important, though. So I'm happy people are doing it and that it's not me because I, I would have no idea what to do. It's well beyond my scope of knowledge. Yeah, that's an important reminder of like the diversity of the community around Elixir and, and you know, in the various ways that it's being applied and enhanced and extended. I think it's really easy in your day to day if you're doing data processing or web applications or background tasks or, you know, whatever that you kind of lose sight of everything else that this technology is being applied to and how and how the community is growing and it is uh it's exciting and invigorating and i appreciate the reminder that that is one of the cool things that's happening with the technology we love here and uh as we start wrapping up here 
Any final plugs or ask for the audience? I know that I think the most recent open source project I remember seeing was Muzak. Uh, what's the status <laughs> on that? Are you taking PRs? So, I mean, it's Muzak is the open source version of a paid project. People still use that. It, you know, it still exists. Muzak Pro is there. I still think, funny enough, I still think mutation testing is important and good. Apparently, most people don't, but enough do to where it makes sense for me to keep it keep it running. And it's not so hard because it's it's not like something that needs a lot of effort. Because again, Elixir doesn't break, you know, <laughs> they don't have breaking changes. Muzak is going to keep running. If people want to look at it and play around with it and, and learn more about mutation testing, great. But yeah, that's to be fair or to, to, to be honest, I don't do much open source work anymore. Probably not much that isn't paid in some fashion. When I first started doing open source, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm helping people. But then I, I sort of realized that most of those people that I'm helping are actually companies. There is some open source that is really just consumer software that is free, which is great. Open office should exist. There's lots of stuff out there that's open source that is for people that, that is free and that it's good software. That's great. But a lot of most of stuff is really just like companies getting the benefit from it. And I don't really want to donate my time to companies anymore. So I have some paid stuff like I have Muzak Pro. There is some other open source stuff that I still technically own, but it's still like it's like kind of done like assertions. I think I still need to transfer that to the Benchy repo. I don't remember if I ever did. And like Benchy, Toby just did a new release of that, which is great. And, you know, I just don't really have the time for it anymore either, you know, so with with the kids and, and, and everything. So I have less time and I'm not doing as much of it. And I got a little soured on it just because, you know, all of these constant conversations around open source developers like burning out and not getting paid for it. I was like, well, maybe we should just charge for software again. Like back <laughs> in the 90s when you'd go to like Office Max and buy a software on a CD and take it home and install it, you know, maybe that's what it should be. Maybe it shouldn't be give it away for free and hope somebody donates. Maybe it should just be like, yeah, I, I put time into making this thing. If you'd like to use it, you can pay me for it. I think that's a totally good thing to do, you know? So look, looking forward to uh, Muzak floppy disks or CDs <laughs> in the next uh, year, maybe. Awesome. Yeah. If people want to find you uh, to follow up or ask questions, are you available on online? Yeah. I mean, Twitter's the best place to find me, although I'm also less active there these days than I used to be. But yeah, I'm uh, uh, Devin C. Estes on Twitter. Yeah, if anybody has questions or anything, I'm, I'm usually there. But yeah, more reading than putting out content these days. Cool. And if, if people want to find out more about Remote, where, where would they do that? Remote.com is a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, we have an engineering blog. We're trying to do more up there these days. I think there's a couple cool Elixir-ish things up there. Uh, and, you know, if folks have questions, then they can also get in touch. I mean, of course, like every company, we're also always hiring Elixir engineers. So if folks are interested, they can drop me a note or apply through Remote. But yeah, it's a great place to work. It's, it's funny enough, I... I originally applied there and interviewed there like a year and a half ago at this point. And I had my interview with, it was a much smaller company at, th at that time. It was like 20 developers or something. And now we're like over a hundred, <laughs> but I had the interview and they were saying like all these things about how they take care of people and there's, you know, no rush and they're not going to like push people. And, and they're really like people focused and the principles of the company. And there are so many times where I've seen in interviews that those principles are more aspirational than operational. 
And so I was like, "Ah, I don't know if it's going to really be as good as they said it was. And so I went somewhere else. But then Toby, my my friend and fellow Berliner joined there. And after a few months, he was like, no, it's real. They really do practice what they preach. It actually does work like that. I was like, ah, cool. Okay, good to know. And so then when I was looking for another job, I was like, all right, I'm cool. Let's do this now. I trust that this is going to be good. And yeah, six months in, it's been great. So I do like it there quite a bit. That's great to hear. This has been a great conversation, met and surpassed my expectations. So I hope you had a great time. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Uh, Thanks again to our guest, Devin Estes, for joining us today. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic production. Today's hosts include myself, Owen Bickford, my co-host, Dan Ivovich, and our producer is Bonnie Lander. Our executive producer is Rose Burt. Here at Smart Logic, we build custom web and mobile software. We're always looking to take on new projects. We work in Elixir, Rails, React, Flutter, and more. If you need a piece of custom software built, hit us up. If you're enjoying Elixir Wizards, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Your reviews help us reach new audiences and grow our fan base. You can follow us on Twitter at, at SmartLogic for news and episode announcements. You can also join us on Elixir Wizards Discord. Just head on over to the podcast page to find the link. And don't forget to join us again next week for more on Elixir and a polyglot environment.